All right. Well, happy St. Patrick's Day, and we are here to start a brand new series called The Story. Now, this is going to lead us all the way up to Easter. We are going to discover what the story of the Bible is. We're going to be able to articulate it in just a few phrases, and we're going to get a good start today. Everybody loves a good story. Our lives are filled with stories. Conversations are filled with stories. Our entertainment is nearly entirely stories. We're drawn to moving and inspiring stories. In fact, our life is a story, right? Story, the sense of story, is deeply embedded in the human spirit, a sense of being a part of, of an epic adventure that we get to participate in. It's, it's almost as though this is, is where the human spirit is heading us, that, it's that something wonderful is happening here and I'm a part of it. Something wonderful is happening here. Something wonderful is happening in this world, and I'm a part of it. Something wonderful is happening in our community, and I'm a part of it. Something wonderful is happening in our church, and I'm a part of it. Something wonderful is happening in our family, and I'm a part of it. Now, now sometimes life kind of erodes away and chips away this sense of story in our own lives, and, and very often, I would say most often, unfortunately, our lives just become routine. Day to day, just kind of reloading the same thing. You wake up, you eat, you go to work, you come back, you eat, hang out, go to sleep. And, I mean, sometimes we lose the sense of story. We want to recapture that sense of story, not just in the Bible, but what the story of what God is doing in this world truly involves us, that something wonderful is happening here. God is doing something wonderful, and I'm a part of it. It's an exciting adventure that we'll discover over the period of these weeks leading up to Easter. Every story has six elements. Every single compelling story has six elements. Uh, the author, Donald Miller, has done a lot of work on this, and, and this has proven out to be true. Every story has six elements. There's a hero. The hero has a problem. That hero meets a guide to help him with that problem. They develop a plan. They call the hero to action that results in dot, dot, dot. This is the big adventure of a story, right? What is going to happen? What is going to happen? And usually what happens is something wonderful. Every movie, every book, there's this exact same narrative that takes place. And because every single compelling story has these six elements, I believe God has embedded that sense of story in our spirit, in our lives. One of the things that makes us truly human is that we understand that we're a part of a story. And that story has very specific elements. Now we're in church, and so what is the greatest story ever told? Precisely, Nacho Libre, Nacho Libre. It has those six elements. We have a hero. The hero is, of course, Ignacio. He is a, a cook in a Oaxacan monastery. There he is. There's a problem. He cares for the orphans, and, and they need like a salad. They just need like a salad. There's a guy. He, meet, he meets Escalito. He's a homeless man who believes only in science. There's a plan that comes together to become the great Nacho Libre, a great luchador. And there's an action plan. He starts going to tournaments and, and competing right against the best luchadors in the land. There's an action plan. And then the result, he makes enough money to buy salad and a bus for the children to go see cool things. That's Nacho Libre. It has those six elements. Now, a little more famous, not nearly as good as Nacho Libre, is Star Wars, right? Star Wars. There's our hero. Yeah, for real. It's Nacho Libre here. Star. Okay, there's a hero. The hero has a problem. Right? What's the problem? The empire is rising. He meets a guide, Obi-Wan, who coaches him towards the force, the light. A plan comes together. We gotta blow up the Death Star. An action plan to mobilize the rebel forces, and the result is, yeah, you gotta watch the movie. We all know what the result is. 
It's the same story. Every single story, every single compelling movie or book, every narrative that has been passed down from generation to generation in every single civilization follows these six elements. In every compelling story, the hero is flawed while the guide is extraordinary. Put this in your brain because I'm going to ask you a trick question here in a minute. And the last service, blew it. In every compelling story, the hero is flawed while the guide is extraordinary. Let me run this real quick here, right? Nacho is the flawed hero of, because of his simplicity and his girth. Escalito has the profound wisdom. Luke is flawed by his insecurity and youth. Obi-Wan is this extraordinary mystical person who's in touch with the force. Frodo Baggins is flawed by his timidity, but Gandalf is this extraordinary guide, right? The lonely orphan Harry Potter is, it, it has a sad story, but there's this father figure, Dumbledore, uh, who is this guide that follows him along. The bully Daniel LaRusso, this is the, the true human story, right? He's flawed, he's bullied, he's small, but he has this extraordinary guide, Miyagi. The sheltered Diana, she hasn't been outside of her little kingdom, but there's this majestic mentor, Antiope, who helps her along. Every single compelling story has a flawed hero and an extraordinary guide. The flawed hero, helped by the extraordinary guide, rescues the world. Now, let's stay on this slide here. This is a trick question. The trick question. In the Bible, in God's story, who is the hero? Oh, you see, it's a trick question. The hero is flawed. So if you say Jesus, you got demons in you. <laughs> Who's the flawed hero of the Bible? It's us. We are the flawed hero in the Bible. Who's the extraordinary guy? Now you can say it. Jesus is the extraordinary guy. No one more extraordinary than him. You know, divinity in humanity, and he comes sent from heaven itself to guide humanity on the right track. Now, this is weird for us. I mean, this is weird for us to think that we can be the hero of God's story, that we are the flawed hero and God is our extraordinary guide. That is so difficult for us to understand. It's so difficult for us to get our heads around because in church, all we're told is we are sinners and we are lowly and we are failures. And when we come to church Sunday after Sunday, we're reminded of that. You're not doing well enough. You're not good enough. You, you need to do better. That's all we seem to get from religious circles. And so for us to hear today that we are the hero in God's story, it's, just, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. But if we don't understand that, we will not understand the story of God's word. Let's start from the beginning. Let's start in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to take more than one chapter a week in these five weeks uh, of the Bible. I think there's 1,026 chapters. The story begins at the beginning, Genesis, which means beginning, and chapter one, which is the beginning of the beginning, right? This is the hinge of the story of the Bible. So we can't understand the story unless we understand Genesis one. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. We have this, this incredible beginning here of Genesis chapter one that God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth dark and chaotic, right? But he didn't want it to stay that way. So the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, hovering over the turmoil, hovering over the darkness, hovering over the chaos. And God said, let there be light and there was light. This is the entire narrative of the Bible as the world is created dark and chaotic 
but God has this trajectory that the world will be filled with light. And so we have in Genesis chapter one, the first chapter of the Bible is dark, but there's a glimmer of light by the voice of God. By Revelation chapter 22, the entire cosmos is filled with the light of God, so much so that there is no dark, there is no night. And so the entire Bible is a journey of darkness to light. That's the entire narrative of the Bible. So there's this Hebrew poem in Genesis chapter one that then puts the heart of God into perspective in terms of what God is doing, what his plans are. There's six days kind of laid out as six verses of this poem in Genesis chapter one. Day one, God separates the heavens. Day two, God separates the waters, sky from sea. Day three, God separates the land from the waters. Then day four, five, and six, he fills these things in order. God fills the heavens, filling day one with life, uh, with um, uh, stars. In day five, God fills day two, filling the skies with birds and the waters with fish. Day six, God fills the land. He fills day three as he fills the land with vegetation and animals. And then the crescendo of this Hebrew poem is found in Genesis 1.26. As with any Hebrew poem, it is all pointing towards the end, the final verse which declares the, the grand climax of what God is doing in his heart for this creation. Genesis 126 says this, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And this has been thought of a lot that we have one God in plural, one God in plural. Uh, we have come to know that as the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this is the first expression of that. Our one God says, let us make man in our image and let them, let humankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. Humankind, mankind is to have dominion. That word man in Genesis chapter one is the word Adam. And you know, we have come to, to think that that's a, a person, the first man whose name was Adam. That's not really the point of this whole thing. The point of this whole thing is God makes humankind. The word for humankind in Hebrew is Adam. It's not, it's not a name, it's, 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 the, it's, it's what God is saying, his plans are for all of humankind. And humankind is not singular man. Just as God is not singular God, let us make man in our image. Our one God is plural. So when he makes humankind in his image, he makes us plural. Genesis 1.27, so God made man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Adam is male and female, equals in every way. Male and female, that is Adam, that is humankind made in God's image. One humanity, yet plural, male and female. Adam simply means humankind made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God as though we're, to use a little older term, we're viceroys, we're representations of God here on earth. And here's the reality of Genesis 1, and it's a doozy. The reality of Genesis 1 is that we are in charge. We are in charge of this place. And I know that's another foreign concept here, right? I'm weak, I'm, I'm just a sinner, you know, and, but now we're thinking that we are the hero of God's story. We're thinking that God is the sovereign, God's in charge. Well, God says we're in charge. In Genesis chapter one, God looks at us, Adam, male and female, and says, you have dominion. You have dominion over this earth. It is yours. You are in charge. In Hebrew, that word is radah, which means to reign, to rule, to subjugate, to take over. Now, 
a lot of us are thinking, well, I thought God is sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. He's absolutely the sovereign God. But any sovereign at any time can give any authority to anyone he or she wants. Fair enough? Any sovereign can say, you're in charge of this territory. You're in charge of this part of my kingdom. God created humankind to be in charge of this earth, over the earth and over every living thing. But Genesis 1 says, the very clear word radah, to reign, to rule, to subjugate, to take over, to be in charge. Genesis 1.28 repeats this mission. God looks at us, Adam, male and female, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. There it is again, subdue it, subjugate this earth, rule over this earth and have dominion over it. Every living thing that moves on the ground, we are in charge. So our mission is to steward the creation of God and make it better and better and better. This is our mission from the very beginning. We are in charge of this creation. The sovereign God made us like him. We are plural yet one. We are male and female. We can think creatively as God thinks creatively. We can separate and bring order as God separates and bring, brings order. We can fill things. We can make things um, uh, you know, wonderfully new and exciting and we have fresh ideas. All of Genesis chapter one that God began is now our story to carry on. We can bring order to where there is chaos. We can bring light where there is darkness. God looks at us, you're made in my image. I have sovereignly deemed that you are in charge of this earth. You can be the hero here. I will guide you. I'm the extraordinary guide, but you can be the hero of this story. What's the problem? You turn the page from Genesis one, get past Genesis two, and here you are, on the third chapter of the Bible, and we decide to turn this earth upside down. Through violence and selfishness, through corruption and greed, we turn this world upside down, and instead of using our dominion to, to bring light out of darkness, instead of using our dominion to make this place better and better and better, we've made it worse and worse and worse. And we've tried, you read the Old Testament, we'll get to this in coming weeks, but you read the Old Testament and we've tried the law and we've tried conquering and we've tried politics and we've tried expanding territories and borders. We've tried ruling over people as slaves. We've tried it all and failed and failed and failed. And then we get to Jesus. Then we get to Jesus. And Jesus gives us a whole new identity. He, he reinvigorates us and says, you can be the hero of the story. You can be used by me, guided by me and guided by my Holy Spirit when I'm gone. You can be used by me to be the hero of the story. You can be used by me to exercise dominion well over this earth. You can be used by me to make this world better and better and better. Francis Schaeffer wrote about this um, a lot in the 60s through the 80s, um, but he understood what it meant to have this dominion over the earth. He says this, humankind has dominion over nature, but he often uses this privilege wrongly, and that is an understatement. To exercise dominion rightly is to treat the world as having extraordinary value. To treat the world as having extraordinary value. Again, that's kind of a foreign concept to us maybe. What do you mean this world has extraordinary value? I thought this world is just gonna disappear in some fiery judgment. I thought God's just gonna wipe this whole earth away and then we get to go to the floaty heaven, right? That's not the spirit of Genesis 1. It's certainly not the spirit of the narrative, the story of the Bible. God created the heavens and earth and says, it is what? Good. And then by his sovereignty, he made us the rulers over this place, that we would be good stewards of this world, good stewards over every living thing, and make this place better and better and better. As he guides us, this extraordinary guide leads us to make this place better and better. 
but we failed, we failed, we've, we've done this wrong, and, and in some respects we've done it wrong because we haven't valued this world the way God values this world. God values this earth. I mean, the, 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 the terrain, the, the environment, God values this earth. We say that, see that in the creation story. I mean, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates the sea and the sky and the land, and you see his heart, and every single step of the way, this is good, this is good, this is good. If we don't value this earth, we are not aligned with the heart of God for his creation. And then you see God valuing life. Uh, the, the, the final two days, he's just pouring life into this world, is teeming with life in the skies and the seas and on the land, vegetation and animals and finally human beings. And God says, I love this place. It is good. And then here comes humanity, the, the supreme creation of, of God, the humanity made very much like God. And then we use this authority to be in charge. We use it, as Francis Schaeffer says, wrongly, and we destroy what God declared good because we don't value it. We don't value the environment, so we wreck it. We don't value life, so we kill it. We don't value humanity, and so, hey, what can I take from you, and what can I take from you, and how can we use our resources for us, our tribe, and shine everybody else, right? This isn't the heart of God as we see in Genesis chapter one. And as a result, because we don't value what God values, we take our dominion and we use it wrongly. And the environment is hurt, and life is hurt, and humanity is hurt as a result. Nancy Piercy writes a book called Total Truth. It's an incredible book, maybe 20 years old now, but it's awesome. When we understand Radah, this idea of dominion, that God gave us dominion, when we understand Radah properly, we participate in the work of God himself as agents of his common grace. You're getting a lot today. You're a hero in God's story. You're now an agent of his common grace. You are a viceroy of God, a representative of God. She goes on to say this, we are entering upon a lifelong quest to devote our skills and talents, get this, this is your life here, devote our skills and talents to building things that are beautiful and useful. Your life can be about building things that are beautiful and useful while fighting the forces of evil and sin that oppress and distort God's creation. This is what it means to be the hero in God's story. This is us, this can be us, right? Building lives that are beautiful and useful while fighting the forces of evil and sin that oppress and distort God's creation. That's why our lives can be a, a vital part of God's ongoing story. Now these are big concepts, right? We can be the hero in God's stories. We are, we are agent of God's grace. We are using our lives to build beautiful things and resisting the oppressors and, risk, and resisting the things that destroy. These are big concepts, but, but let me put it in, in a couple of bite-sized chunks here. Your family right now, your family can be better than the family one generation earlier. Your family now can be better than your family was a generation ago. That can happen. That's what it means to, to understand the idea of story, that we're a part of God's story, that we're doing something wonderful. But if, if family is just kind of reloading all the dysfunctions of the past and pouring them into our family, we're not really redeeming anything. We're not moving the story along. And so I would encourage you to think, is my family right now a better, stronger, more loving family than one generation before and the generation before that? Sometimes generations actually take the family story backwards. There's now more division. There's more hate here. There's more arguing. There's more yelling. There's more chaos in this family. That should not be. Now thank God for his redemption, right? If your family's a mess and some of you are thinking, well this part of the sermon really feels yucky because my family is a total disaster. There's redemption. 
There's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's reconciliation. There's help. Where your family, if your family this generation is worse than the last generation, we can say, okay, come on, get it together here. Get it together. We are the heroes of God's story to steward God's creation, to steward relationships, and to make things better and better and better. So come heck or high water, this family is gonna be healthier than the previous generation. We're gonna get the help we need. We're gonna read some stuff. We're gonna go to some seminars. We're going to make this family better than the last generation. Is your industry more responsible than your industry was a generation ago? Is your industry treating employees better? Is your industry sourcing its goods better? Is your industry more kind to the environment? Is your industry better now than it was a generation ago? If not, what does it mean to be a steward of God's creation? What does it mean to, 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 to make things better and better and better? Do what you can to see to it that your industry is more responsible than the generation before. Are the people you encounter every day better because they know you? Just think through that. Are the people around you better because they know you? Are they more encouraged? Is their day brightened? Are they helped a little bit? Are the people who know you better because of their relationship with you? That's what it means to be good stewards and making the world better and better. Is your church helping more people because you're here? Is your church doing greater things than the church a generation ago because you're here? Because we're simply deciding life is about stewarding God's creation and making it better. So what can I do to help? What can I do to serve? What can I do to volunteer? What can I do to be generous? What can I do to make this church help more people than a generation ago? Are your kids equipped to make the world better than you made it? It's not just about making the world better in this generation, but it's about this generation equipping the next generation to make the world better. So are we raising our kids with a selfless kind of an attitude? Uh, hasn't this college scandal just made you throw up in your mouth? I mean, all these entitled little brats running around like the world revolves around them and their parents just fueling that. It's disgusting. We're not making the next generation uh, equipping them to make the world better and better with that kind of attitude? Where, where are we equipping our kids and our grandkids to say that, that life and this story is, is about selflessness and kindness and sacrifice and bearing each other's burden to live our lives for the betterment of others? That's how we steward God's creation and make it better and better and better. And this isn't easy stuff. I mean, this is heavy, heavy stuff. But this is the story. And God guides us through this story every step of the way. He always has, and he always will. Now, I know a lot of us can, can get our heads around the fact that God is this extraordinary guide. Okay, I can get that God is this extraordinary guide, but I'm no hero, right? I'm no hero, and I understand it. We are trained to, to think of ourselves by our worst behavior, the things we know we should be doing that we're not, the things that we did that we know are terrible. I mean, we, these things sit heavily on us, right? And again, you go to church and you just get reminded of how terrible you are all the time. But for us to retrain ourselves, to think of ourselves the way God sees us, you can be the hero of this story. And I will guide you. I'm the extraordinary guide, but you can be the hero. Look at God's word. You don't have to look two pages in God's word before you see how flawed the heroes of the Bible are. Short list. Noah's a drunk. Abraham's an idol worshiper. Jacob a schemer. Moses a murderer. Samson unwise. David the adulterer. Jonah the defiant. John the Baptist eccentric lunatic. Peter the brash, Paul the, persecutors of Christ, the persecutor of Christians. I mean, this is just the short list. There are hundreds of people in the Bible. Every single one of them are flawed, but every single one of them conquered something about their flaws in order to move forward the cause of Christ. This is what it means to be a hero. 
It, it means to know where we're flawed, to, to, to let that sit appropriately, but to not let our flaws define us. To be able to say, God gave us a whole new identity. We are loved, we are forgiven. He's proven that through Jesus, proven that through the cross of Christ. You are loved, you are forgiven. You are my son, you are my daughter. You're the hero of the story. I'm here to guide you now, go, right? Do something beautiful, build something fantastic. Build a fantastic loving family. Not perfect, but just maybe a little better than the generation before. Build an incredible industry that does some good in this world and is, is more responsible than the generation before. Be kind to the people around you. Make their day brighter, right? Make somebody else smile. Serve them today. This is what a hero does, not defined by your flaws, but defined by what the guide tells you you are, being strengthened by our extraordinary guide, Jesus Christ. What is a hero? A hero is someone who is admired for selfless courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. We might have some heroes in our mind that we admire, but think, and this is hard, can I be this person? And forget being admired, but can I be a, a selfless person? Can I be courageously selfless? Can I, I achieve some things in my life, whether it's an industry or family or kindness or volunteer, can I achieve some things that are gonna make this world better? Can I be a person of noble quality? Can I be a person that, that others look to and say, you know what, I think I want my life to look a little bit like theirs. This is possible. It's not possible because of our goodness, it's possible because of who God says we are. And our extraordinary guide says we are his sons, we are his daughters, we are perfect, holy, and blameless in his eyes, that we are forgiven, that we are given a new identity, empowered by God himself through his spirit to do extraordinary things. It takes a while for us to get used to this, but listen to what Jesus says to us at the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of his ministry, here's what Jesus says to us. You are the light of the world. There's a trick question I like to ask people. Um, who's the light of the world? And what, is, what does everybody think? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I'm just a scumbag, sinner, lowly. What does Jesus say of us? Jesus says you're the light of the world. I mean, could you imagine living under, under these religious rulers who all they did was tell you how disobedient you are and bad you are and you don't deserve anything from God. And here comes Jesus and says, oh, they're not right. Uh, you're the light of the world. It's like, that's just no way are we gonna be able to embrace that. It takes time. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. He looks at us, flawed people, and he says, you are gonna be the light of the world. The hope of the world is gonna emanate through you. It's hard for us to get our heads around that. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Then at the end of Jesus' ministry, he reiterates this. This is John chapter 14, verse 12. These are the hours before his crucifixion. He says to us, whoever believes in me, this is us, will also do the works that I do. Now get this. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Jesus says, not only are you the light of the world, that's how he started his ministry. At the end of his ministry, Jesus says, I've done a bunch of cool things, haven't I? Yes, indeed, I'm an extraordinary guide. I'm the son of God. I did a lot of cool things, but you, by my spirit, will do greater works than these. And I don't think he's talking about signs and wonders, you know. I think he's talking about a church, an assembly of dozens, then hundreds, then thousands, then hundreds of thousands, and millions of people united in our passion to advance the cause of Christ. That's what Jesus is interested in here. He's interested in equipping us to be heroes in the story of God and to do greater works than Jesus. And that's what we're doing all over the world right now. Christianity, the church, all over the world, and yes, it has flaws, but all over the world, 
the church because of the love of Christ and the preaching of the love of Christ and acts of kindness living out the love of Christ to our neighbor is making this world a little more like heaven every single day. And yes, we're flawed and there's some serious problems in the church. We talk about those a lot. We do not have a perfect church because you're here and I'm here. We don't have a perfect church, but little by little we are learning and growing in what it means to be a hero in the story of God a little more selfless, a little more kind, a little more service, a little more generosity, and we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there. And Jesus says, I'm not gonna leave, leave you alone. You'll have a guide, you'll have a guide. John 6, 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus came and says, yes, I'm an extraordinary guide. He ministered for about three years, but he says, it's better that I go because I'm gonna send my spirit. And the Holy Spirit is with us and the Holy Spirit is in us, and I've gotta be clear about the work of the Holy Spirit. I can't explain it. I've read a lot in the Bible about the Spirit. A lot of it's confusing. I've read books of theology on the Holy Spirit. Every one of them, I shake my head and I did, don't understand. It just seems like a lot of nonsense to me. But what I can tell you is that there is a very real person-to-person -person spiritual relationship that I have and you have with God. As, as real as I'm sitting right now, I have a relationship with God. He is Spirit, and so it's you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a challenge, and sometimes faith is a challenge at times. But his spirit is alive and well. When I pray to God, that connection through prayer is the spirit of God, binding me in relationship with God. When I wonder about life and, and who God might be, that's the spirit turning in my spirit and guiding and directing. When I read the Bible and there's certain things that get illuminated, that's the spirit's work in me. If there's ever, a, you know, a time I, I, I do something that is in line with the life of Jesus Christ, that's the spirit in me guiding me in that direction. So while I can't have all this cleaned up theology about the Holy Spirit, what I can say is that he is the very real connection that I have and that you have with God himself. The Spirit continues to be our extraordinary guide, the Spirit of Christ. So we know, and let's just admit, we are flawed. We know and admit that Jesus and his Holy Spirit and his word are extraordinary guides for us. But then there's also a plan. There's also a plan. Jesus gave us a plan to rescue this broken world. Jesus gave us a plan to rescue this broken world. And he gave us that plan in Luke chapter 4. Keep in mind, the Old Testament is just full of failure. An easy way to read the Old Testament is figure out everything that didn't work to rescue the world. That's how you read the Old Testament. I'm going to read about what didn't work to rescue the world. Uh, law, nationalism, conquest, manipulation, religion. You read the Old Testament, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. Here comes Jesus. This is what works. This is what works. And when Jesus introduced himself, he introduced himself by the prophecies of the Old Testament because the Old Testament itself said, this isn't working. Somebody's got to come to fix this mess, right? Here's how Jesus introduced himself, quoting from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the plan. After all that didn't work in the Old Testament, all the while promising that the Savior would come, this extraordinary guide would come, here comes Jesus, and he says, this is who I am. I am about helping the poor. I'm about liberating the captive. I'm about making the sick well. I'm about freeing the oppressed, and I'm about bringing God's favor to the earth. Jesus says, that's what I'm about the way we call it, the cause of Christ. 
And then he spends three years equipping his disciples to advance that cause. And what we're gonna discover over the next few weeks is we're gonna discover that Jesus is guiding us, the heroes of the story, towards this. To move this whole world from law to grace, from power to love, from conquering to freedom, from pride to service, from taking to giving, and from tribal disharmony to global unity. This is the cause of Christ. This is what Jesus is equipping us to do. And in all of our relationships, we can do this. In our industry, we can do this. We can build incredible families advancing the cause of Christ. We can build incredible industries that make this world better and better. We can be more responsible with the environment. We can take life, all of life, uh, seriously. We can value it as God values it. We don't have to look out for us all the time. And we can actually equip our kids and our grandkids to look out for others and to treat them as better than themselves. All these things are possible if we understand the story. That this earth is not a throwaway earth. That the life in this earth is not a throwaway life. That God's plan is not to just rain hellfire on this place and judge it. God's plan is to restore and to redeem and to reconcile us to each other and reconcile the world to him. And he's our guide equipping us as the heroes of that story. Now, I know this is foreign, and I know that some of you are even shocked by this because you can't get your head around it because you've probably baked in a church environment your whole life that doesn't allow us to think in these terms. And I get that. But it's time for us to see this story brand new, to see this story fresh, and to head towards this Easter celebration that is going to be this incredible moment of us celebrating the story and to think to ourselves, I get to participate in it. I get to participate in it. I get to be the hero in God's plan to rescue this world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, this journey. There's a lot to think about here. Some of these concepts, I'm sure, are, are foreign to so many of us. But we see this incredible setup in Genesis chapter 1, where you are the sovereign God and you create the world good. You create the planet good, the water's good. You create the fish of the sea and the birds of the air good and, and the vegetation and the animals good and, and humankind, Adam, male and female, good. And then you give us dominion, Radah. And we confess that the collective of humanity has done a lot to destroy this earth. And collective humanity has done so much to devalue human life or to think of this life in terms of how this life can benefit me or us or my clan or my nation. God, I pray that you would work in us um, to, to really wrestle through what it means to have your heart for this earth, your heart for all of life. And then the changes, God, the changes from thinking that we are just, just lowly creatures, um, most of whom are destined for condemnation, but to think that, that we, by your grace and by your calling, can be the heroes of the story. And you are our extraordinary God. You've never left us throughout the history of humanity. You've never left us, even in our failure. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, here to be among us as our extraordinary guide. And he left us with his Holy Spirit to continue to guide us as sons of God, daughters of God, holy and blameless in your sight, forgiven. You raise us up. You put our shoulders back and our chin up. And, and you encourage us and empower us by your spirit to keep building a fantastic world to steward this earth and to steward life, to make this world better and better and better towards the prayer of Christ that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We yield to your will. Do with us what you want. We want to participate in this grand story of making all things that are wrong right, all things that are far from you, near to you by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. 